Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is June 4th. Passed by Congress June 4th of 1919 and ratified on August 18th of 1920, the 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote. The 19th Amendment legally guarantees American women the right to vote. Achieving this milestone required a lengthy but difficult struggle. Victory took decades of agitation and protest. Beginning in the mid-19th century, several generations of women's suffrage supporters lectured, wrote, marched, lobbied, and practiced civil disobedience to achieve what many Americans consider radical change of the Constitution. Few early supporters lived to see the final victory in 1920. Beginning in the 1800s, women organized, petitioned, and picketed to win the right to vote, but it took them decades to accomplish their purpose. Between 1878, when the amendment was first introduced into Congress, and August 18th of 1920, when it was ratified, champions of voting rights for women worked tirelessly, but strategies for achieving their goal varied. Some pursued a strategy of passing suffrage acts in each state. Nine western states adopted women's suffrage legislation by 1912. Others challenged male-only voting laws in the courts. Some suffragists used more confrontational tactics, such as picketing, silent vigils, and hunger strikes. Often, supporters met fierce resistance. Opponents heckled, jailed, and sometimes physically abused them. By 1916, almost all the major suffrage organizations were united behind a goal of a constitutional amendment. When New York adopted women's suffrage in 1917 and President Wilson changed his position to a support an amendment in 1918, the political balance began to shift. On May 21, 1919, the House of Representatives passed the amendment, and two weeks later the Senate followed. When Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the amendment on August 18, 1920, the amendment passed its final hurdle of obtaining an agreement of three-fourths of the states. Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby certified the ratification on August 26, 1920, changing the face of American electorate forever. The campaign for women's suffrage was long, difficult, and sometimes dramatic, yet ratification did not ensure full enfranchisement. Decades of struggle to include African Americans and other minority women in the promise of voting rights remained. Many women remained unable to vote long into the 20th century because of discriminatory state voting laws. And in 1942... One of Japan's main goals during World War II was to remove the United States as a Pacific power in order to gain territory in East Asia and the Southwest Pacific Islands. Japan had hoped to defeat the U.S. Pacific Fleet and use Midway as a base to attack Pearl Harbor, securing dominance in the region and then forcing a negotiated peace. The United States was aware that the Japanese were planning an attack in the Pacific on a location the Japanese codenamed AF because of Navy cryptanalysts had begun breaking Japanese communication codes in early 1942. The attack location and the time were confirmed when the American base at Midway sent out a false message that it was short of fresh water. Japan then sent a message that AF was short of fresh water, confirming that the location for the attack was a base at Midway. Station Hypo, where the cryptanalysts were based in Hawaii, was able to also give the date, June 4th or 5th, in the order of battle in the Imperial Japanese Navy. Early in the morning of June 4th, aircraft from four Japanese aircraft carriers attacked and severely damaged the U.S. base on Midway. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, the U.S. carrier forces were just to the east of the island and ready for battle. After the initial attacks, the Japanese aircraft headed back to the carriers to rearm and refuel. 
While the aircraft were returning, the Japanese Navy became aware of the presence of U.S. naval forces in the area. Devastator TBD, Devastator Torpedo Bombers, and SBD Dauntless Dive Bombers from the USS Enterprise, USS Hornet, and USS Yorktown attacked the Japanese fleet. The Japanese carriers Akagi, Kaga, and Soru were hit, set ablaze, and abandoned. Hairu, the only surviving Japanese carrier, responded with two waves of attacks, both times bombing the USS Yorktown, leaving it severely damaged but still afloat. A Japanese submarine later sank the Yorktown on June 7th. On the afternoon of June 4th, the USS Yorktown scout plane located Hairu and the Enterprise sent dive bombers to attack. That attack left the Hairu burning and without the ability to launch aircraft before it finally sank. Over the next two days, the U.S. troops at sea and at Midway continued their attacks, forcing the Japanese to abandon the battle and retreat. The Japanese lost approximately 3,057 men, four carriers, one cruiser, and hundreds of aircraft, while the United States lost approximately 600, or 362 men, one carrier, one destroyer, and 144 aircraft. This critical U.S. victory stopped the growth of Japan in the Pacific and put the United States in a position to begin shrinking the Japanese Empire through a years-long series of island-hopping invasions and several even larger naval battles. And then finally, in 2008... A giant laboratory aboard the International Space Station will get a bit bigger when astronauts add the attic to the already tour bus-sized Japanese module. Wielding the space station's robotic arm, astronauts will plug a storage closet from a temporary perch and attach it to a more permanent home on the roof of Japan's $1 billion Kibo Laboratory module. It's a pretty simple move, Station Flight Director Annette Hasbrook said late Thursday here at NASA's Johnson Space Center. The crew will have all control of it. Discovery Shuttle astronaut Karen Nyberg, the chief robotic arm wrangler for NASA's STS-124 mission, will lead the Kibo module move, with Japanese astronaut Akio Hoshid and station flight engineer Greg Chamatoff watching over the docking rings between the two orbital rooms. The move is slated to begin about 2.57 p.m. today, with Nyberg hosting the storage closet, also known as the Japanese Logistics Module, JLP, from the top of the station's hub-like harmony node and moving it about 30 feet to the rooftop of Kibo. The actual move is expected to take less than an hour once vestibules between the rooms are prepared, NASA officials said. We're looking forward to Friday and then the following day for the JLP relocation and the robotic system's initial checks, the deputy Kibo operations project manager told reporters on Thursday. Kibo storage room was delivered last March during an earlier shuttle mission to await the arrival of its parent module the Japanese pressurized module, which Hoshid and his STS-124 crewmates installed earlier this week. The squat storage module weighs about 18,490 pounds, is about 14 feet wide and 13 feet long, but it is dwarfed by the larger research module, a massive 32,000-pound orbital room that is about 37 feet long and includes two windows, a small airlock, and a 33-foot main robotic arm. A porch-like external platform and second smaller robot arm to handle external experiments are slated to round out the Kibo facility when they launch aboard NASA shuttle later this year. To prepare for today's module move, the joint 10-astronaut crew of Discovery and the station removed eight phone booth-sized equipment racks from the storage room and installed them inside the main Kibo lab on Thursday. Two spacewalkers also cleared the lab's roof-mounted docking port to receive a smaller module that day and installed a new camera to aid the use of Kibo's robotic arm. The JLP needs to be completely empty, Hoshid said of today's move in a national interview. The plan is not to have any racks inside because we're trying to not freeze them just in case a heater failed and we can't have the module warmed up. 
In addition to moving the storage room, Shuttle Commander Mark Kelly and Station Commander Sergei Volkov are expected to discuss their joint mission with reporters on Earth today. NASA's mission control here at Spa- Johnson Space Center roused Discovery's flight crew with a song Bright as Yellow by the band Innocence Mission, a tune chosen especially for Nyberg, who is making her first space flight and is the 50th woman ever to fly in space. Good morning, Discovery, and a special good morning to you today, Karen. NASA astronaut Shannon Lucid radioed up to the shuttle. Good morning, Shannon, and everybody in Houston, replied Nyberg, who will be the first person to wield three different robotic arms in orbit during her mission. Thank you so much for waking us up with that music. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com The 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution at archives.gov The World War II Battle of Midway at nationalww2museum.org And Space Lab attaches to the space station at space.com The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.